still my soul. Hey everybody, this is Phil. Welcome to our Bible study podcast. At the end of this study, please take the time to subscribe to the Glen Springs Church YouTube channel and check out our website. Also, if you live in the Gainesville, Florida area, we would love to have you visit us in person. For now, let's open up the Heavenly Library and may the words of the Holy Spirit sink deep into our hearts. Thanks for joining us. In every Well, good morning. Good to see everybody today. Do you have a Bible this morning? We're going to the book of Revelation, the second division. Revelation chapter 2 is where we will spend our time together this morning. And while you're opening your Bible and getting settled, we welcome all of you. Thank you so much for being with this church family today. If you're visiting with this good church as I am this morning, we especially welcome you. And we hope you'll have occasion to come and be with this good church again very soon. And we hope very, very often. And I will tell you from my point of view, prime perspective, I'm very happy to get to be with you today. Tried to express that in the Bible class period and want to say that again now. How much of a pleasure it is always to be able to visit with you. I appreciate the fact that uh, we, uh, we tend to have a lot of cross-pollination between our, your congregation and mine in Temple Terrace. We have a lot of students who travel back and forth with each other and a lot of moms and dads, therefore, who travel back and forth with each other and several of you who visit with us on occasion as you come for various things in Tampa Bay. We're very grateful for all of that. And so it makes it a particular pleasure to be here. And I'm always glad to get to be where Phil preaches. I'm always a little bit intimidated standing in Phil's pulpit at, uh, because, frankly, I'd be happy to listen to him today. Uh, always love having him. It's always special. Phil's been to our church family many, many times, coming again this year for a special activity we're doing this fall, and he always does us great good. And I know he does that here on a regular basis, and so I'm very grateful for that. So good to be with you today. Thankful for the theme that you're pursuing this year as you think about the book of Ephesians. And I'm glad to talk today a little bit about Ephesus, and we want to talk about what might have been and what still can be. I want to tell you by way of beginning this morning a true story. This is not a preacher story. This is a true story. This actually happened. <clears throat> this took place in pre-pandemic times. There was a couple who lived in the Northeast up uh, very close to the Canadian border, and the husband took a job in Canada. They lived in the U.S., but he took a job in Canada, and they were going to move their family there. But the wife and the children were going to stay in the U.S. till the end of the school year and sell their house. Now, did I mention that this family had eight children under the age of 12. Eight children under the age of 12. I know that sounds exhausting just to think about, doesn't it? And so the dad moves to Canada, the mom stays in the U.S. with the kids to finish the school year and sell the house. But at spring break, she loads up their extended van with all eight kids, and they're going to go see dad up in Canada. And so she's got eight kids in a van traveling to go to Canada to see dad. When they get to the Canadian border, the boarding control agent looks in the van, sees the eight kids, is astonished by all of that, but begins to ask the questions that he has to ask. And one of the questions is, he says, ma'am, do you have any firearms or drugs in the car? And she looked at him and said, sir, if I had any guns or drugs, don't you think I would have used them by now? <laughs> I love that story because it just illustrates that, that long-term relationships really can 
be challenging. I want to ask a question this morning. I want you to raise your hand if this applies to you, if you will, please. I'd like to know in this audience this morning, how many of you, how many of you like me grew up going to church? That is, you had a mom or dad or grandparents, and you went to church on a regular basis every week like I did. Raise your hand high where we can see. Look at that. You see, that's more than 90% of this audience this morning. What does that say? Well, it says that most of us, of course, are multi-generational Christians. I am the, I'm the fourth generation in the Truex family to practice New Testament Christianity. My dad preached the gospel for some 60 years. His mother, Mary Emily Day, was a saint if ever one walked this earth. My grandmother, her father was a gentleman named John Thomas Day, and he was a gentleman farmer and a lawyer and a judge, and he was a preacher. And so I'm the fourth generation in my family to practice New Testament Christianity. My children, Heather and Josh, were the fifth in my family, and my granddaughter, Jocelyn, whom I had the privilege to baptize a couple of years ago, she is the sixth. And so there are a lot of generations, just as I would imagine, there are with you as well. You, many of you, can identify with that background. And make no mistake about that. There are some advantages to that. There are amazing advantages to that. You know, I didn't have to, uh, I didn't have to struggle to find my way out of the maze of denominational error or Catholic ritualism. I, uh, I had a ready-made family, a second family in the church, in the local churches of which I've been a part to encourage me and help me in my walk with God, motivating unto love and unto good works. And, and when I became a Christian, my mom and dad encouraged me in that. They supported me in that decision. That was a blessing to my life and something they, they, not, they didn't try to stop me in that. They rejoiced with me in that. Let's also be very honest about that. There are challenges that come with the familiarity of faith and with being a Christian in a multi-generational setting. For example, week after next, <clears throat> where I live, the Florida College lectures will take place. And I can guarantee you there will be a conversation that will happen several times during those four days. There will be a group of individuals, a group of classmates, former classmates, who will be standing and talking and reminiscing, and they'll be laughing and talking and enjoying the reminiscing about, about a variety of things. And then someone will mention a name, and there will just be silence. And everybody knows exactly what that means. That means that a name has been mentioned of somebody who once, once walked with God and now no longer does. You know, it's interesting when you read your Bible, you never read, you never read about Jesus struggling to stay in love with his church. But sometimes the church is people struggle to stay in love with him. Do you have your Bible? Let's read a little bit. Revelation 2, as we think about Ephesus here in this letter that Jesus wrote to them in Revelation 2, verse 1 beginning. Listen to how it reads. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He said, I know your works, I know your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them liars. You have persevered and had patience and have labored for my name's sake, and you have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your candlestick, your lampstand, from its place, unless 
You repent. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to him to eat of the tree of life, <clears throat> which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Well, it's interesting here when you read that. I want you to be impressed at the very beginning of our discussion this morning that this is a great church. This is a sound church. In any directory of churches of Christ, this church is going to have a star by its name. And Jesus says, look, I walk among my churches, and so I, I know what's going on among you. And he says some very, very complimentary things about this congregation. In fact, he says things like this. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. That went to the... I'm finished. <laughs> That is the link that everybody at Temple Terrace wishes I would preach right there. Well, if we can possibly get that back, that'd be great. But if not, we can, we, there we go. So far, so good. <clears throat> Was that providential or what? Right there, ladies and gentlemen. So far, so good. Jesus says such wonderful things about this church. He says, I know your works. I know your works, and that's not to be discounted. That really does matter to the Lord. And so in the book of Ephesians 2 and 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them, that is in those <clears throat> good works. And this church had done that. Jesus acknowledges that. I know your works. And then he says, you know what? Your works really are on steroids. That is, it, it's labor. It's bone-wearing toil. And effort. It's the kind of terminology we would use for, for working all afternoon on a Saturday on a hot August day in Florida where you are just weary to the bone by what you have done. And these Christians evidently had done that. They had given time and effort and energy. They had given, <clears throat> they had given talent and emotion to the work of the Lord. And that is not to be discounted at all. And he said, I'm, third, I, I, know your, I know your endurance, your patience or your endurance. Your stick to itiveness. Now, that's not really a word, but it should be. And we understand what that means that they had, they had stayed with the task, even when it was not easy to do so. Keep going, don't stop, hang on, stand firm. Well, that, that really was Ephesus. It is what, what they had done. And he said, I know your purity. You may have a translation that uses the word holiness. Well, that was an amazing accomplishment in the first century, and it is in the 21st century as well. These individuals lived in many ways in a cesspool of sin and immorality, and yet somehow they had been able to maintain their holiness, their purity before God. And the Lord says, I know your good leadership. And you say, you know what, Don, I didn't see that. When we read through those verses, I did not see where he complimented their good leadership. Well, sure you did, because he said, you have tried those who say they're apostles and they are not, and you have found them to be liars. Well, how did that happen? It means that leadership did their job. Do you remember in Acts chapter 20 that Paul called the very elders of this very church to the little isle of Miletus, and he gave those elders this charge. He said, I want you to take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among you over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, and I want you to shepherd the church of God. And we talk often about the fact that shepherding means that you lead and you feed and you protect. And these shepherds had done that. They had protected that flock. There were those who came and claimed to be apostles. They had put them to the test. They found them liars. And so they had not allowed the flock to be infiltrated by those who would do it 
harm. And so they had good leadership there. And I tell you, they had good leadership also just in teaching. The apostle Paul had preached there and Aquila and Priscilla had spent time there. And you have Apollos and Timothy who taught there as well. And then this church had received this wonderful epistle that we know as the book of Ephesians as well. And the point of all that is, ladies and gentlemen, that there are tremendous things that are said about this congregation. This church hadn't gone into apostasy. This church hadn't fallen prey to heresy. This church had not, had not involved themselves in error or immorality. This was a great church. I mean, if you were going to give an award for the Church of the Year in Asia Minor, this church surely would have been nominated. This is a wonderful congregation of God's people. But then, of course, there's one other matter here. And that is, in Revelation 2 and 4, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Now, the word nevertheless is interesting because almost always nothing good follows that word, nevertheless. I mean, imagine saying <clears throat> to your wife, oh, sweetheart, I, I love you more than life itself. Nevertheless, well, nothing good's going to come after that, I'll, I'll just promise you. And so Jesus says all of these amazing things, complimentary things, and then he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Somehow, some way, in this wonderful church, something had gone terribly wrong. Seemingly, <clears throat> seemingly relationship had been replaced by ritual, and, and devotion perhaps had been replaced by duty. Something evidently was wrong with their motivation. And so, and so what was love-based? I want to do this. Evidently was now just duty-based. I have to do this. And I'll tell you, that's only a teeny tiny little step from being threat-based, where if I don't do this, then I will be in trouble. And Jesus, I think to this church and to us, makes it very, very clear that he's looking for something, something deeper than habit and more significant than ritual. These individuals, Jesus said, had left their first love. One author said, well, the honeymoon was over with this church. Been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. But I don't want you to miss this, ladies and gentlemen. We always say, listen to me carefully now. We always say that the church at Ephesus left their first love. What does that mean? In my home congregation, I say very frequently, we've got to remember that a church is as her members are. A church is as her members are. For example, if you want a church to be a friendly, warm, loving church, then you've got to have members who are friendly, warm, and loving. It doesn't have anything to do with size. It doesn't matter if you're 50 members or 500 members, it doesn't matter. If you want a church to be warm and friendly and loving, then the members have got to be warm and friendly and loving. And so when we say that the church at Ephesus had left the first love, what we're really saying is that the members who composed that church somehow, some way, had allowed their love for the Lord, their devotion, their passion, to wane. It can happen so easily where we end up doing things because it's just, it's just kind of what we have always done or because it's what others expect us to do. You see, the reason we went through the exercise at the beginning about, <clears throat> about recognizing that for most of us, we are multi-generational Christians 
is that one of the challenges of being a multi-generational Christian is that this can happen. Now, I would not indict you at all, so I'll just tell you that for me, for Don, this is a challenge. I feel that danger. Because what we are doing in this room today, what we are doing in this hour is as natural for me as breathing air. And the danger that I face, the danger that I face is that I do what I do spiritually out of habit rather than heart. Several years ago, I read an interesting article. It was entitled, The Struggles of a Cradle Christian. And I, I, don't, I don't remember the content of the article. I just remember the, the four the four dangers that he pointed out. And I want to share them with you. This author said, you know, for a cradle Christian, you know what he means by that? Somebody that when you were born, mom and dad were Christians. And all you've ever known all your life is, 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 is faith and Christianity and church and worship and brethren. This is all you've ever known in your life. That's me. That's all I've ever, ever known. And this author said that there are four distinct dangers, struggles, for a cradle Christian. I want to talk about the first one. The other three we're just going to mention in passing. <clears throat> the first one that he mentioned was the doubting dilemma. And I think maybe that's the one that we really need probably to, to, to probe just for a moment. It is the fact that almost all of us at some point in time, we're multi-generational Christians. At some point in time, we all begin asking ourselves, is my faith really my own? Or is it simply a product of my upbringing? Now that's an important question. Because ultimately, faith has to be ours. Think about that. Amram and Jochebed, they, they did a wonderful job in raising Moses. But Amram and Jochebed's faith was not what made Moses endure the privations that he did in order to serve his God. Or Terah, Terah's faith was not what motivated Abraham to willingly wander in his old age at the command of God. Or Jacob and Rachel, their faith was not what kept Joseph out of the bed of the seductress. Now, there's no doubt that those, those parents all had an influence on their children, just like mine did on me. But ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, it has to be our own faith. Think about how the book of Hebrews begins. Remember that? The Hebrew book begins like this. God, at various times, and in a variety of different ways, spoken to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken unto us by his son. And so in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now that begs the immediate question, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Or are you simply going along to get along? And if you do believe this, what difference does that belief make in your life? And do you believe this? Because you've made an investigation of the facts and because you've read the Bible and drawn your conclusions and come to your own faith. Or could it be, ladies and gentlemen, that sometimes, sometimes we sit here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday because it has never crossed our mind that we might do something else. That's why sometimes, sometimes, Young people get away from home for the first time. They move to another part of the country either to continue their education or because they're getting their first career job. And mom and dad aren't there, their grandparents aren't there, and their friends aren't there, and the building they grew up worshiping isn't there, and the preacher at home isn't there. And sometimes they find that their personal conviction and faith aren't there either. Did you catch what the Hebrew writer said? God has spoken in these last days to us. Not just your parents, not just your grandparents, not just to the few, to the good, to the strong. No, he speaks 
to us, to you, and to me through his son. And the only question is, ladies and gentlemen, whether or not we're listening. And one of the struggles of a cradle Christian is the doubting dilemma. We've got to make sure, ultimately, that our faith is our own. It makes all the difference over the long haul with our faith. Now, in this article, he talked about two or three other things. He talked about worship burnout. That is, we sing familiar songs and we hear familiar prayers and we go through routines in worship that sometimes if we are not careful, we can put our mind on autopilot and it becomes habitual rather than, rather than heartfelt. And he talked thirdly about shattered, shattered idealism. That is, we come to realize that our brethren, people that we look up to and respect, people who've been influential in our life and helped mold our faith, something happens and we realize they have feet of clay. They are not perfect. And if we put our faith in men rather than God, it can shatter. It can shatter us. And then fourth and finally, self-righteousness. And that's a challenge as well, isn't it? Because for those of us who are multi-generational Christians, for those of us that this is all we've ever known, for those of us, it's easy to begin thinking, you know what? I've been baptized. In fact, for me, I was baptized 50 years ago. I was 14 years old. You can figure out how old I am. But I was, I've been baptized a long time ago. And, and I, I go to church. And I've got that topic mastered. And, and I know what to do and what not to do. And I've heard all the sermons. In fact, Don, I, I've heard sermons from a lot better preachers than you are. I'm doing pretty well. Thank you very much. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, that's only, that's only a tiny little step away from Pharisaism. These individuals who were eminently righteous, and yet Jesus reserved his most scathing rebuke for these people who were so eminently religious. For 45 years of preaching, I've heard people ask one question repeatedly of me. Don, what do you think the greatest danger is facing the church? Now, whenever I'm asked that question, I know that the person asking has something in mind. But through the years, you know, there, I, people have answered that question in a lot of different ways. What's the greatest danger facing the church? Well, maybe it's marriage and divorce and remarriage. Maybe it is theological liberalism. Maybe it is poor leadership in a church. Maybe it's young people leaving the Lord. Well, those things are significant. They're important. Nobody's going to deny that. But I will tell you that in many ways, those are simply symptoms. It seems to me, ladies and gentlemen, that the greatest problem facing the church today is that we sometimes don't think that a lack of passion for Jesus is our greatest problem. And so Jesus says to this church that was so wonderful in so many ways, you've left your first love. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't leave it there. You're good Bible students. You know already, <clears throat> you know already the prescription that he gives them to try to get things back, to get back in line. They, they are the original three R's. He, he's going to give them three words. In Revelation 2, in beginning of verse 5, he said, I want you to remember the height from which you've fallen. I want you to repent and do the things you did at first. And if you don't repent, I'll come to you and I'll remove your lampstand out of its place. I don't know when he was going to do that. He just said that he would. There are three constituent elements there that Jesus said, these will get you, you, you know, we talked in the Bible classes, you can do a U-turn. You can go back in a better direction. And he said, but it's going to require three things. Number one, he said, first of all, I need you to remember. I need you to remember the height from which you have fallen. I want you to remember the height from which you have fallen. Can you do that, ladies and gentlemen? Let's, let's think about that for just a second. Do you remember? Do you remember how powerful it was the first time that all the pieces went together and you got it, you really got it, that Jesus Christ had died for you? Or when you saw for the first time that sacrifice, 
graphically depicted, for example, in a movie like the, the Passion of the Christ, where at least you got a sense of the physical torture and the societal shame that Jesus went through, and it really clicked in for you and you got it? Or do you remember, can you remember back the first time that you took the Lord's Supper? For me, that was on a Sunday in the spring when I was 14 years old in a little town called Kennett, Missouri. But I've taken the supper over 2,500 times since then. Can you remember the first time you took the supper? You know, I, again, I, I, think, I think about where I am in my life and in my faith. I've taken the supper over 2,500 times. I, <clears throat> I have sung every song in our books countless times. I've heard hundreds and hundreds of sermons. I, I have preached over five thousand sermons. I have said amen to multiplied thousands and thousands of prayers. My challenge is to not allow those things to lose their meaning to me. I, I don't ever want that to happen. I don't, I don't ever want to see grace as ordinary or the cross as common. I don't ever want to take forgiveness or salvation for granted. And the solution, Jesus said, is to remember, to remember how special the height, where those things were in my life, and to make sure I remember that and focus and get my mind where it belongs. And then he says, I want you to repent. Repent and do the first works. Repent. I, I need to hear that. We all need to hear that. You know what, what he's saying in that? Listen to me carefully, ladies and gentlemen. Don't miss this. Jesus is saying, listen, Don, you need to hear that if you ever take all those years of faith and you have all of that and yet you have it without any heart, without any devotion, without any passion toward me, that is a sin. And I know it's a sin because if it wasn't a sin, he wouldn't have told me to repent. And so he says, look, leaving your first love, that's a sin. Not feeling passion toward me anymore, it's a sin. And so what you do about that is you repent and then he said, thirdly, you repeat, you go back and you do the first works. Just like a marriage counselor, oftentimes we'll talk to a, a couple and they will say, you know, the, <clears throat> the, the flame is gone of our marriage. The passion the, 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 is gone in our marriage. And so often a, a marriage counselor will say, you've got to go back and you, you've got to go back. And you, you've, you've got to date again. You've got to fall in love again. You've got to do the things that made you fall in love with each other again. And Jesus said, I want you to go back. I want you to remember and repent. And then I want you to go back and do those things that you did at the beginning of the relationship. You know, there's an old cliche <clears throat> that says that God... God has no grandchildren. We've all heard that. God has no grandchildren. And so we talked about being multi-generational Christians. Don't, don't put everything away just yet. We're not just quite finished. We said at the beginning, you know, that most of us in this room are multi-generational Christians. But the reality is that there is a sense in which we all have to be first-generation Christians and cultivate first-generation faith and first-generation humility and first-generation zeal and enthusiasm. And that has to be something, ladies and gentlemen, that, that faith has to be something that we keep with us always. Always. 
this, uh, this bag, this computer bag of mine, we are, we are very, very seldom ever separated. Uh, this, this bag has been with me <clears throat> throughout the United States, north, south, east, and west, in countless places. It's, it's been with me overseas. We've, we've been together in Russia and Hungary on a dozen preaching trips to Italy. We've been together in Israel and Jordan. We, we've been to a lot of places together. And we're together every day. Every day. We, we spend some time together every day. We're just seldom ever apart. I want you to imagine this morning that this bag, that this bag represents my faith. It represents my faith. Well, what, what's got to go into that bag to, to compose my faith? Well, there are a lot of things that would, that would go in this bag that, that are extremely important to me, that help me with faith. I mean, obviously, obviously the Bible is going to go there because of the word of God. Through your word I gain understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So the Bible would obviously go with it. Now, but this isn't just any Bible. This was my dad's Bible. This is a Bible that my dad preached from and taught from. So this Bible is very important to me because this Bible represents not just the word of God, but it does represent a legacy of faith that my mom and dad were very careful and worked very hard to pass on to me. So that's, that's certainly going to go there. And this, this is my favorite book on prayer. This is my favorite book on prayer. I don't know how many times I've read this book. But this is my favorite book on prayer by Philip Yancey. And it reminds me that if I want to go home, if I want to go to heaven, then I've got to keep the lines of communication open. God tells me to pray. Jesus said, I must always pray and never grow weary in that. Because communication is essential to relationship. I can't have faith without prayer, without communication with God. And so clearly that, that would go in here as well. And then this, this little book would go in there. This is my favorite devotional book. <clears throat> this is by Gary Henry. It's the first devotional book that he wrote called Diligently Seeking God. And I have no idea how many times I've read this book. It is still my favorite daily devotional book. And it reminds me that every day, every day, I've got to feed my soul. Every day, I've got to, I've got to do something to help my faith to be strong and to grow my faith and develop my faith along with the word of God and prayer. And so that, that book is clearly going to go in there. And then my, my family's going to go in there. This is a page out of a calendar that my daughter made for me and. It has my wife, Vicki, and my two kids and my grandkids. And it, it's a reminder that my family helps make me the person that I am. And not only has my wife helped me with my faith over 45 years, but now my responsibility is to try to help grow faith in my children, and especially now my grandchildren. And so that, that certainly would go in here. And then these gentlemen will go in here. And that's Dee Bowman and Ed Harrell and Paul Earnhardt. And these two of these three are in heaven now. But these men are, these men are all about 25 years older than I am. And these men all were a mentor to me. They've all helped me. And whatever I accomplish in the kingdom, these men have had a tremendous part in. 
And so I'm so grateful for them. They, they, help, they help me develop my faith. And then there, there are people like this. This is Roger Schaus and Ricky Jenkins. They're two of my closest friends in the world, and they're both preachers. And as Solomon said, iron sharpens iron, and they help me be a better preacher, and they hold me accountable in the work I do. And so they're, they're certainly going to go in here. And then this is, this is a membership directory from the Temple Terrace Church. This is my church family. And these people mean the world to me. They've done for 28 years what the Hebrew writer said. They have, they have motivated me unto love and unto good works. They've, they've helped mold me into the person that I am. And they help my faith every single day of this world. I don't know where I'd be without those people. And so they, they certainly are going to go in here. And so you put all that together and wrap it up. And, and all those things go together to compose my faith. And now the only question really is, what, you know, what am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with this? this you know, I said this bag goes with me everywhere. It really does. We, you know, we're hardly ever separated. It's just always there. But the question is, what, do you, what are you doing with this? What, what are you doing with whatever it is that represents your faith? And so young people, when you go to school tomorrow, you step foot on campus tomorrow, the question is, are you going to take this with you? Are you going to take your faith with you? I mean, it's easy here this morning, on Sunday morning, it's easy. But, but tomorrow, when you, get, when you get to school or you get, get on campus, are you going to take that off and, and leave it outside there while you go and have your school day? And then, you know, before you go home, you know, come back, pick it up, because, you know, mom and dad, you got, you got to deal with them. And so pick it up there. Or how about when you go to work tomorrow and you go into your workplace? You going you gonna to take this with you? Maybe you take it with you and set it down by your desk. But it may be that something arises during the day where that faith is really inconvenient. And so you just kind of slide it under the desk, out of sight and out of mind until you finish the business, whatever it is. And then when it's not an inconvenience anymore, go ahead and pull it back out. It just doesn't work that way, does it? See, that's got to be with us always. It's just got to be who we are, what we're about. So the Lord never, ever looks at us and says, look, I, for all the good in your life, you've left your first love. We've got to remember that being a part, being a part, ladies and gentlemen, of a sound church with sound leadership that teaches sound doctrine and does sound work doesn't ensure that we are individually right with God. Got to remember, there's not going to, there's not going to be any group ju judging on Judgment Day. Salvation ultimately is the most individual and personal experience in the world. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And it's got to mean something to us until the very day that we die. I've mentioned my dad two or three times here, and I'll just end with this this morning. I've mentioned my dad two or three times. My dad was a wonderful man. He's just an amazing man in so many ways. He overcame so much in his life. His father abandoned the family when my dad was 14 years old. That was 1930 in the heart of the Great Depression. They lived on a farm in Missouri. From the time my dad was 14 years old, he was entirely on his own for the rest of his life. He grew up, he served God, he preached the gospel for 60 years. 
in the last two years of his life, I was still living in Indiana. <clears throat> Dad moved back to be close to us. My mom had died. And Dad had had cancer. He had gone through the treatment, but his cancer recurred. And he was told, I was with him when the doctor told him that, that he was, this was going to be terminal. He would, he would not survive this illness. And what a blessing that God put him where we were, and so I could see him every day. And toward the end of his life, I was supposed to leave to go to Texas for a gospel meeting, and I just wasn't very comfortable with that. And so I told him, I said, Dad, I'm, I'm not going to go to, not go to Texas next week. I'm, I'm going to stay here so we can spend some more time together. And he said, no, son. He said, you go preach. You, you need to go preach. He said, I'm, do, I'm doing better. And he really was doing better. He said, I'm, I'm feeling better. And he was up and mobile and going and doing it. He said, I'll be just fine. You, you go ahead. So I did. I went. And on Saturday night, when I got where I was, I called him, and he was just fine. And so I preached all day on Sunday, and Sunday night I called him. And something clearly had changed. I didn't know what it was, but something was different. And I said, Dad, what's wrong tonight? And he said, well, son, I had to leave worship this morning. He said, the pain was so bad, I just, I just couldn't stay. He said, in fact, some of the men had to help me to get me to the car, get me home. And he said, son, today I know was the last day that I'll ever be able to go to worship. And he said, son, if I can't go to worship, I'm ready to die. And three days later, he did. Because the thought of being in this world and not being able to worship his God with the people of God was absolutely unfathomable to him. Because he never, he never let his faith waver. I pray his son has picked up some of that. I pray we will all pick up on that so that our Lord will never be able to say, nevertheless. And I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, what you're doing in this church family this year as you go through the book of Ephesians, one of the richest pieces of writing in all the text will help you in ways that you can't even begin right now to imagine to keep your faith strong and close to the Lord. If you need to begin your walk with the Lord this morning through the water of baptism or by coming home to him, this invitation is for you. Let's stand and let's sing. The Lord is in his holy temple. Again, thanks for listening. If you live in north central Florida or you're just passing through, we would love to have you visit us at the Glen Springs Road Church of Christ. Also, check out our website, glenspringschurch.com. You can learn more about our church family and how to contact us. Until next time, God bless. Keep silence before.